trust symbols you can trust there was a recent study issued out that talked about badges and uniforms conveying trust and reliability uh, we've long suspected that the clothes we wear send some sort of message to those who see us uh, Shakespeare wrote in Hamlet, he said that the apparel oft proclaims the man. But now new research says that even religious garments and symbols convey a message. When I go places and I'm in public and I'm wearing either a Faith United Methodist Church shirt or uh, the, the clerical shirt like I have on in, in different colors, people will talk to me that wouldn't have normally talked to me. They'll be willing to share some things with me that they probably wouldn't share to their average stranger on the street. Why? Because symbols mean things. Uh, according to studies, we make a decision about somebody in the first 12 seconds that we meet them. We've already decided how we feel about them, what we think about them, whether we think they're smart or dumb, rich or poor, all of these things. We've decided that. In the first 12 seconds, and then when we get to know them, we spend a whole lot of that time just trying to use all of the, the, the information that we gather to fit back in this box that we have put them in. How we are dressed is one of the th first things we see about a person when we first meet them. Are they wearing a uniform? Do they have some sort of identification badge? There are symbols that mean something, and they've been etched in our hearts. Uh, if I were to show you a golden M, we would know what the golden arches look like. And we would know what the golden arches mean when we saw that. Uh, if I saw the letters KFC next to each other, we all know what we would expect in that building when we went there. We would not go to a building with the symbols KFC on the outside looking for a hamburger. There are symbols all over the place. I have a ring on my right hand. It's got an X and a P in it, which is not really an X and a P. It's the Greek letters Chi and Rho, which are the first two Greek letters of the word Christ or Christos, and that's a symbol. It means something. Uh, we look around the church and we have a cross and a flame. That's a symbol. Uh, it means something. We have uh, these pulpits and podiums and everything with the letters I, H, an S on them. That's a symbol. It means something. That actually happens to be the first three letters of Jesus in Greek. There's no, there's no J in the Greek letter, and so when you spell Jesus in Greek uh, and translated over, transliterated over to English, you get I-H and S, and that's what that comes from, but it means something. That entire explanation doesn't fit on one of these pulpit covers, so they just put it there. The symbols mean something. And Paul is making reference to a symbol in the passage that I read in your hearing when he says, oh, how beautiful are the feet. Yeah. Yes, the feet. 
That's an odd symbol, but I'm going to come back to it in a little bit of why he picked the feet as a symbol. But our feet say a lot about ourselves. According to another research, pers- uh, research journal, that 90% of our personality can be revealed by what kind of shoes we wear. They say that those who like to wear colorful sneakers, according to the study, I ain't going to say it's right or wrong, but those who like to wear colorful sneakers can be emotionally stable. High top sneakers are favored by people who are introverted and agreeable and conscientious. People with, that, with well-kept high fashion shoes tend to be worried about relationships. And biker style boots are supposedly worn by people who are tough and aggressive. And they said, according to this study, don't blame the pastor, I'm just reading the results of the study. <laughs> but apparently, particular women who wear stiletto heels are, li- are linked to a vivid personality and have a desire for attention and high self-confidence, plus excessive muscle fatigue. Uh, but... but <laughs> The, 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 and I would submit to you, although this study came out before these shoes came out, I would, I would venture to say that those that buy big baller brand shoes have money to be wasted. $900 for an autographed shoe. Are you serious? Sorry. That ain't, in the, that ain't in the sermon. I'm just... Long story short, the, the, the shoes it was saying in this study are symbols of our personality. So does the cross that we wear some people around their neck and on their shirts. So do the ashes that you have on your forehead during a particular Wednesday. These are religious badges that identify you and let you know that you belong to a specific group. They're distinctive and there are distinctive symbols and badges that are in other religions as well. If we saw a woman walking around with her head covered in a Muslim country, we would know what that meant. If someone was wearing a yarmulke on the back of it, they, we would know what that meant. But people see religious symbols and for whatever reason they think their goal is a reliable person. Their goal is a dependable person. There goes somebody who is grounded in their faith. Uh, There were four separate experiments performed by a person by the name of Richard Sosis and his colleagues, and they they altered one-fifth of the images they put in front of the people so it looked like these people were wearing a cross, but they weren't. Or it looked like they had ashes on their forehead, but they actually didn't. And they did this during Lent to see if people would get those same Things And next they took a diverse group, uh, uh, and these people didn't have any religious badges. And then they took another group of several hundred university students, and they took them and they examined all of these photos. And they didn't ask them what they believed, they just rated the face for trustworthiness. And they asked them, did they think this person looked like a trustworthy person or not? And the results said that the people wearing Christian badges prompted powerful feelings of trust. And not only among fellow Christians, but among non-believers as well. Uh, but I'll stop right there to tell you that I, 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 I don't really think we have as many atheists running around as 
they would like to claim. I, I, I would argue that there are people that are running around pretending that they don't believe because of peer pressure. Uh, one of my lodge brothers, he served overseas in the military, and he said, I never saw an atheist in the foxhole. When the times got rough, when the bullets started flying, all of a sudden, that thing that you was making fun of, you calling on. You can't call on, oh, my nothing, or, oh, I think I believe. When you're in trouble, you're going to say, oh, my God. But the Christians and the quote-unquote non-Christians both looked at the religious symbols and saw something they trusted. The presence of the cross doubled the money that non-Christians were willing to offer somebody in the games that they played, whether or not they trusted somebody. And so this thing was saying that long story short, when you see religious symbols, there was trust to be had. And, 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 and the apostle Paul was talking about these things that he trusted in the text when he said, and really in verse 4 and 5, he said, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness which is of the law. The man who does these things shall live by them. He's talking about the source. Let the church say source. The source of God's righteousness. Uh, and he said it is found and foretold in, in, in as early as Leviticus. We in Romans, but he's talking about it all the way then. Uh, the Bible has one point to it. It's not a history book uh, per se. It's not an encyclopedia. It's not, a, it's not a chemistry book. It's here to do one thing and one thing only, and that's to point you to Jesus. So we can't really look at it for other things, but what they talk about beforehand is some of the laws that were put out there in Leviticus about the different things that you could eat and not eat and clothes that you could wear and not wear and certain people you were supposed to hang around and not hang around. And there were up to over 613 laws that were put out there. And, and it talks about that this righteousness that they got, if you were able to follow all the rules, uh, they would consider you righteous. But the source of that righteousness came from God. And then it says in, in verses 6 and 7, it says that the righteousness of faith speaks of this way. Do not say in your heart who will ascend towards heaven, that is, to bring Christ down from above, or who will descend into the abyss, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead. It's talking about that availability of Christ. You see, there's a, there's a negative thing to the negative connotation to the availability of God's righteousness and the negative connotation means that there is no need to search the heavens or the deep about it. The positive connotation is that it is available through Christ just as near as your heart and mouth. Moses was predicting this in Deuteronomy. Now I'm going to stop there right now and just pause for a little bit and say that it's kind of strange when you look at it because in verse 4 and 5 Paul is uh, uh, writing this letter to the Romans and he's quoting Leviticus, a book full of the laws. Do this. Don't do that. Do this. Don't do that. You better not do this. You better not do that. And then he goes on to talk about that that's supposed to be done away with. And when he talks about it, he quotes, uh, he talks about Leviticus, he, he, he quotes uh, Leviticus 18 at the beginning and then Deuteronomy 30, 12 through 14 at the end. Uh, Leviticus 18 says, therefore, you should keep my statutes and my judgments, which if a man does, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. 
And then Deuteronomy 13, or 30, I'm sorry, 12 through 14 says, it is not in heaven that you should say who shall ascend to heaven for us or to bring us, uh, to bring it to us that we may hear it and do it. Nor it is beyond the sea that you should say who will go over to the sea and bring it to us that we may hear and do it. But the word is very near you in your heart. Why would I bring up those two things? Because on the onset, it would look like they are contradicting themselves. One's talking about do the law. Another's talking about what's in your heart. One's talking about all the things you got to do and not do, but the other's talking about what you is in your heart and your mouth. And, and Deuteronomy 30 comes after chapters in the book of Deuteronomy where Moses is listing blessings and curses. And I got to pay attention to it and note that if you actually take all the blessings that are listed before what he reads and all the curses that are listed before what he reads, there are more curses listed than blessings. There are more curses listed than blessings. But Paul is making an assumption to the people that he's writing at the Church of Rome that the Church of Faith may not have had. He's assuming that these people have read their Bibles. He's assuming that these people know their scriptures, so he doesn't go through all his time pointing out all the blessings and, and the curses and letting them know that there are more curses in it and blessings when he talks about it. He puts do the law versus what's in your heart to let you know that he is talking about these people who know their scriptures, and he's writing to a group of people who have been scattered. Stop me if it sounds familiar, but they've been scattered. They are in a foreign land, a place that they were not originally born from, and they are under the oppression of some governmental leaders who may not necessarily have their best interests at heart. They're in this These people are scattered all over the place, and he's writing to them, and he's letting them know. And so what is assumed here, and that we have to understand when he brings it up in the text now, is that these people are going through some st stuff. They got blight, they got sickness, they got poverty, they've got a hundred other e evils, and they are going through their turmoil and trouble. But he writes to let them know that after the turmoil and the trouble, there's going to be a turnaround. After you go through all of these different things, there's going to be a way on the wind. The Bible says many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord will de deliver them from them all. The Bible says weeping may endure for a night, but joy shall come in the morning. So whatever you're going through, you're going to get through it and come out on the other side. Uh, and he talks about it and he lets them know that everything you've been through, you're not going to need a bunch of pomp and circumstance to know what's going on. Pastor ain't going to have to preach your favorite scripture. The choir ain't going to have to sing your favorite song. Not all these different things are going to have to happen. Ain't nobody going to have to sit on their favorite pew and get their favorite parking spot. These people are going to have this relationship in their hearts. No matter what's going on, no matter what kind of trouble you're going through, you're going to have to have that relationship in your heart. Because sometimes the pastor ain't going to pick up the phone. The preacher's going to have his Bible closed. Mama and daddy ain't going to be able to be reached or they're going to be gone. You're going to have to have this in your heart. Ah, the song says, I serve a risen Savior. He's in the world today. I know that he is living whatever men may say. I see his hand of mercy and, 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 and I hear his voice of cheer. And every time I need him, he's always near. He lives. He lives. Christ Jesus lives today. 
He walks with me and talks with me along life's narrow way. He lives, he lives salvation to impart. And if you ask me how I know he lives, he lives within my heart. We have to have our own personal relationship with him. And when we have our own personal relationship with him, you'll say, I, you can't make me doubt him because I know too much about him. You get it in your heart so you don't need anybody else to pump you up for it. And so we have this righteousness. Uh, we have this righteousness that, 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 that is given to us from God. And then when we have it, all we have to do is receive it. I can't remember the name of the person that said it at first, but he said that the, that the mystery is not that we chase God. The mystery is that God chases us. God has been here since the beginning. And he's been here since the beginning waiting on us to make a decision. Uh, it says that if we confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, he will be saved. We have to make the, 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 make the decision to take the step ourselves. Uh, like we talk about the stages of grace when we got the prevenient grace that would be sort of like a house porch and the justifying grace when we step through the door into the house and the sanctifying grace when we get into the house and live by those rules. Can't nobody make you walk through the door unless you choose decide for yourself. And so we get this righteousness and this righteousness denotes the status that people have on a basis of faith, a present legal status, if you will, that anticipates the future verdict in a divine law court, the, the present covenantal status that, that anticipates a final affirmation of membership. Uh, that, those, are, those are some big old words to say that I know who I am and I know whose I am. And when you know who you are and you know whose you are, can't nobody else change your mind about it. I'm reminded of a story, one of a, uh, I, I went to a birthday party of a friend of mine that's a gospel artist and there was a man there that we've worked together, uh, well he's worked with her and I've worked with her, but we were talking and he was talking about buying a new car and uh, we're going to call him Mr. Smith and Mr. Smith just went to the car dealership and started picking out cars and, and, and the people that were there that were supposed to be selling him the car thought that Mr. Smith didn't have the money to purchase said car. And so they kind of treated him bad. And so they were making all kind of comments about the cars he was picking out. I want that one. Oh, that might be a little bit out your range. I don't know if we can get you in under that. Not knowing who he was and whose he was. And he said, yeah, we, we're doing all this talking, but we'll say, we'll wait till you run my credit. And they were talking about all of the downturn of the economy and what interest rates were at at that time. And he said, no, I'm going to get this car, and it's going to be 0% interest. And that's just the way it's going to be. And the salesperson was still skeptical about it, and, and he, they went in, and finally it came time to run Mr. Smith's credit. And, Mr. S and, and the salesperson came back with what? A 0% interest rate on the car. He knew 
because he had paid off a bunch of cars before and he was meticulous about his credit. Because he was meticulous about what he did, it didn't matter what the people on the outside thought. He knew what was going to happen when it came time to go and run his credit. And because he knew what was going to happen, he, he did not allow this salesperson to make him walk away. He didn't allow this salesperson to make him mad. He didn't allow this salesperson to get him off his game and give him a good cussing that he might have deserved. He didn't allow him to, 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 to rattle him because he knew on the inside what was going on. And he knew what was on the inside, and he knew what was on the inside, and he told him what was going to happen. And when he told him what was going to happen, it happened. Oh, if we could have that kind, of uh, that kind of confidence in our own lives. If we had the kind of confidence to understand that greater is he that is within you than he that is within the world. If we had that kind, of conversa uh, that kind of confidence to know that we are blessed in our coming and our going. If we had that kind of confidence to know that we are crucified with Christ, nevertheless we live. It is not I who lives, but the Christ who lives in me. If we had that kind of confidence to know that we can do all things through Jesus Christ who gives us strength we'd be a lot better off. And we can have that confidence to know that if we confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved and we will be righteous and we will understand on the basis of faith that our present situation is not going to be our permanent residence. Um, so we have the, the reception of God's righteousness. We have to receive it. And then we have the scope of God's righteousness. Let the church say scope. Uh, I got familiar with the word scope often as I was working as a contractor for, for oil and gas. Uh, my companies that I'd work for, I worked for quite a few, they would come in and they would say, this is the contract and this is what these people are going to do for your service. We are going to provide this service and we are going to have this much money to be paid for it. And, and you'd start off, okay, well, I just need you to come in. And if this was a church service, I just need you to come in and do the welcome. Well, you keep working long enough, now they need you to do the welcome and the scripture reading. And then you keep working long enough again, they need you to do the welcome, the scripture reading, lead the folk in song, and then preach. Then clean up the sanctuary afterwards. And they would call that scope creep. The scope of the work you were assigned to do the what you were responsible for, they would always be trying to get more for less. And so as time went on, they would try to get more for less to get more of out of you. But I stopped by to tell you that there is no scope creep in the righteousness of God. It can't get any bigger because he is always over everything to begin with. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and then the word became flesh and dwelled among us. He's been there since the beginning. There is no scope creep. He is ruler over all. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof and everything that is in it. It's already his. We just borrowed it. So it's impartial. It does not distinguish between Jews and Gentiles. You have some people that he was writing to at the time. Some of these people were born into the, fa the family of faith. And there were some who came by and said, I like what this man Jesus was talking about and I want to follow him. And lo and behold, there were those who were born in trying to tell those who were trying to join in that they couldn't join in because they weren't born in. But there is no distinction between Jew and Gentile. We are all God's children. Ah, and so he quotes 
this and he says all and I like that he used the word they, the, the scholars pointed out that he started off in, in, in saying that his righteousness is available to all he used a little Greek word in, in, in that, that says is translated to pass P-A-S in English but it means all there is no distinction there is nobody here that is better than anybody else uh, there is nobody that God just explicitly needs to do anything and these things can change everybody is equal in God's eyes. There is no distinction. Uh, and he goes on to say that we have this, this scope that does not increase the scope of God's righteousness. And, and, and then there is, a, there is a presentation of God's righteousness. The sinner needs to call on the Lord to be saved. And not only does the sinner need to call on the Lord, the sinner needs to believe in the Lord to call. And the sinner must hear the word in order to believe. And then the, in order to believe, he's got to hear somebody who's been sent. Yes. Yes. Everybody ain't been sent. I say time and time again, when I say things, don't just believe it because I said it. Go back and check the Bible for yourself. We should all be studying to show ourselves approved. A workman needeth not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. I won't disrespect the office by getting up in here and trying to make up something on Sunday. I spend time preparing and praying for the sermon, but that doesn't mean that I should be, as a, as a pastor, your only source of the word. We all need to be studying on our own. We all need to be reading the word on our own, fasting and praying on our own. We all need to have some, this, this should be a, a teaching those and, uh, of those who are learning by themselves as well. Or else you'll never get enough for 30, uh, just by 30 minutes on a Sunday. I won't add Wednesday Bible study or Sunday school because, you know, those is empty. <clears throat> but we got to hear the word and study the word and develop our own relationships and he says, he uses this symbol. Oh, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring the gospel of peace. The gospel, God's only son, provides everlasting life. The good news that this Jesus hung, bled, and died for your sins and rose again on the third day. The good news, those how, oh, how beautiful are the feet. And it's like, why would he be using a symbol about feet? I'm not into feet like that. I don't understand why we would be talking about feet like that. But Paul had a reason to be talking about feet. Uh, if we slide on down to, to 2 Corinthians 11 and 25, it says there that three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked. A day and a night I have been in the deep. Paul out here trying to deliver the gospel of the good news. And I'll call your attention to the phrase, beaten with rods. What does that mean? Being a, somebody who followed Jesus back during those times, it was not all fancy. It was not all peaches and cream. It was not good. Matter of fact, they had to use symbols like a kai and a row or a fish or a sign of a shepherd to let you know where the people were meeting for church because if everybody knew where they were meeting, somebody was going to run in that house and beat and kill everybody in there. 
They didn't like Jesus being called the king of the Jews. That's why they mocked him when they put it on his cross. Here lies Jesus, the king of the Jews. And they were like, you keep bringing up these kings of the Jews, we're going to keep executing them like common criminals. They, 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 so it was not a good thing. And lo and behold, they didn't have mega churches with pastors with Rolls Royces and $1,000 custom suits. It, it, was not, it was not a good thing during these times. It wasn't even legal to be a Christian at the first and so these people out here who were, who were, who were, why I cannot sit and think that these people were out here perpetuating a lie was because these people got killed for talking this. They, they, they got dropped in boiling oil and had to fight lions and crucified upside down. These things were happening and, it, and on a good day, they got somewhere and got beat up. And so when he says in the text that three times I was beaten with rods, what they would do is tie Paul up hold his feet up and they would have iron rods and they would beat on the feet to stop him from walking around telling people about Jesus so when he says oh how beautiful are the feet he's saying that he's been through something this is a symbol of what he's had to go on through to share the gospel to those who don't believe Oh, how beautiful are the feet. When they would try to beat those feet with rods, they were trying to cut off the gospel. And so this gospel was a symbol. This, this, these feet, when he talks about it, is a symbol of, of what is meant to deliver the gospel and what all that's been going through. What all that he had to go through in order to deliver the gospel to those who were lost, those who did not believe. He did this, and so, oh, how beautiful are the feet. They may have been through something, but those feet are beautiful to him. Those are a symbol of the gospel and what has been sacrificed in order to deliver the good news to those people. It is a symbol that you can trust. There are some other symbols that you can trust. You can trust the symbol of some nail-scarred hands. You can trust the symbol of a crown of thorns being laid on his head. You can trust the symbol of being dressed up in purple to be mocked as royalty. You can trust the symbol of a blindfold being put on him and getting punched and saying, prophesy, Jesus, tell us which one of us hit you. You can see the symbol that you can trust of a cat of nine tails. There's a symbol you can trust of a path all the way to Calvary. There's a symbol you can trust called the cross. There's a symbol that you can trust there because he was pierced in his side and said, I thirst, and they gave him vinegar. You can say that there's a symbol to trust in that cross because it was on that cross when they mocked him. He said, forgive them, Lord, for they know not what they do. These are symbols that you can trust, but the best symbol that you can trust out of all of those things is three days later after he died, you can trust the symbol of an empty tomb. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, the doors of the church are open and we invite you to come.